0: I'm Bryce Futch, And I'm Tony Melton. And this is The Way Forward. Welcome to today's episode of The Way Forward podcast. I'm Bryce Futch,
1: And I'm Tony Melton.
0: And today we are really excited for this podcast. We have a number of really great guests, and we're going to be talking about China again, as this season is all about China. We're going to talk about religious freedom and persecution in China, uh, why that religious freedom in China is important to us here in the States, why China is moving in that direction, their goal for security, et cetera. And then what are some things that we can be doing to fight uh, that religious freedom and, and make a change there in China? So uh, I'm going to start by introducing our guests. Uh, first, we have Logan Carmichael. Uh, Logan, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from and, and, and what it is you do?
2: Yeah, uh, happy to. So my name is Logan. Don't be deceived by the name. I am a woman. And I am the advocacy director for China Aid Association, and we are a Christian group that works on religious freedom and rule of law for all in China. Um, but before that, I am from Midland, Texas. So <laughs> nice <laughs> from, from the heartland of the Bible Belt, we love yeah. it. Um, but I currently live in Washington, D.C., working for, for them out here.
0: That's wonderful. Well, I appreciate that. Next is John Stone Street from the Colson Center. John, tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, how you got there.
1: Oh, man, that's such a long story. I think that's way more than anybody could (laughs) possibly be interested in. But, uh, yeah, I run an organization called the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. If that name Chuck Colson rings a bell from a generation past, it's uh, really a, a guy that really was passionate about helping the church be the church in culture, helping them understand what's happening, the big shifts that were taking place in culture and how to respond from a Christian worldview. So you might remember the Breakpoint radio program, and that now is a podcast and an email and a radio program that goes uh, out every single day on something having to do with culture and worldview. So, you know, the topic today of China is something that we've been looking at for a long time since we deal with. Issues of international religious uh, persecution, international religious freedom and things like that. And, and you know, right now, if we're, you're having a conversation about international religious freedom, you're either talking about China or Nigeria, I think, uh, yeah. by and large. So uh, anyway, that's that's what I do. Uh, I live in Colorado Springs. Um, I'm married to Sarah, four kids. Uh, my social security number is <laughs> no, that's probably all you need to know.
0: No, that's good. Yeah. And Breakpoint has been a great resource for us as we've been studying this as well. That's really where the the Uyghurs were, was where I first heard about the Uyghurs and and what was going on in China specifically with them. Uh, John and I met originally through the Colson Fellows Program, which is a nine month deep dive into apologetics and something that I would highly recommend to you. Now, Peter, last but not least, tell us a little about you and and what you do.
3: Hey, thanks for having me on, Bryce. Um, So I I do international religious freedom work. uh, worked at the state department for, uh, international Justice freedom ambassador, Sam Brownback, um, did before I was with him, uh, I did work, uh, for middle Eastern Christian communities advocating for them, uh, in, in, uh, Washington after uh, ISIS, um, that work is now that work now has led into just continued work in this issue, uh, trying to develop uh, an international movement around the issues of international religious freedom and uh, counter persecution. And, and really, you know, as, uh, Mr. as John said, it's if you're talking about international religious freedom right now and you're not talking about China, you're missing uh, you're missing the big picture. It's hmm.
0: really good. John, why don't you start and and tell us about, so this podcast is, is, while we are talking about big issues, it really is for the benefit of local folks uh, here in North Georgia. And we're a very, we're still a very Christian area. We're in the heart of the Bible Belt. Uh, Tell us about why Christians, specifically here in North Georgia, should care about religious freedom in China, especially religious freedom for somebody who believes totally different than we do. Why should we care for
1: Muslims? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that is the challenge here is that we're talking specifically about a Muslim population that has um, that, that is being treated at a such a despicable scale that it has earned kind of the official definition, which is a really careful definition. A lot of people don't realize that the term genocide has actually been very carefully defined and rightfully so. It's not just a word you throw around just because there's an ethnic conflict or even right. because there's a religious conflict that has to meet a particular scale, a particular degree of oppression, uh, of death, of, sure. uh, abuse, uh, an attempt to eliminate the population. And, and this has earned that, um, you know, look, uh, a Christian, uh, frame of reference begins with, uh, the doctrine of creation and part of that doctrine of creation, uh, a um a critical chapter in that story is that every single person is made in the image and likeness of God. So our value is not earned. Our value is not associated with ethnic belonging or uh, our uh, you know being able to accomplish a um, a set of you know criteria either as individuals or as a, a people group. Our value is intrinsic. It's inherent to who we are. So that should be enough to care. Uh, and at least pray. Um, you know the, the the other part about it is is that um, one of the great kind of systemic conflicts between um, in world history has been between the religious and the non-religious, and so right. uh, that this is the example of that. Now, there, there certainly has been a whole history of conflict within religious groups or between groups that we would call religious groups, Um, you know, because of, you know, either competing ideas of who God is or competing ideas, even within a particular religion. We see this in Islam. You know, for example, in the Middle East, we see this in the history of Christianity. But the big story of the 20th century was, um, you know, the the rise of secular militancy through fascism, uh, Nazism and ultimately communism. And there's something about a secular frame of reference because it doesn't have an ability to identify human value intrinsic to the human person, to an individual person, Hmm. then it's easy to to, to divide the world up between good guys and bad guys. This was Solzhenitsyn's uh, critique of communism from the very beginning, and one that he reiterated uh, as he spoke out against uh, the evils of the Soviet Union. He said, you know, if only there was this you know, bad group of bad people that we could set apart and then eliminate, and then that would take care of all the problems. And that's really the way the communism sees things is that, right. you know, um, there's a group of people that are guilty by means of being part of a group of people. Now, mm-hmm. By the way, that might sound some like some other ideologies that <laughs> yes. have become, you know, recently popular in the American context as well. But the, the larger point here is that that's not how Christians think. We don't think we that that certain people are good guys and certain people are bad guys because of right. who they belong to. Solzhenitsyn uh, summed up the problem with that theory by stating that famous line, that the line between good and evil runs right through the middle of every human heart, not between people groups, not between nation states, but right down the middle of the human heart. And so that's what we know is true. Uh, and because we know it's true, uh, then we should stand up for it. Uh, For those who are the victims of these bad ideas. But there's also something about defending religious freedom itself. Religious freedom is not just a freedom. Religious freedom is a freedom on which most other, if not all other freedoms hinge. It's hard to have full economic freedom if you don't have freedom of religion. It's hard to uh, have uh, uh, freedom of speech if there's not something that you can be uh, a to higher than the state or other than the state mm-hmm. uh, and religious freedom secures all of those other freedoms. So if we, if we want to see the gospel go forward, then we should have a vested interest in making sure that these sorts of freedoms are preserved because it's good for people. It respects their dignity. And it's the way that societies best function together. I mean, honestly, the best thing for the Chinese communist party members would be religious freedom because religious freedom itself is an intrinsic good uh, based on who we are as human people
0: mm-hmm. no, that's very true and that harkens back to and y'all don't know this but our, our last episode we recorded with adam mcleod from faulkner and we talked about those core human rights and and this is a major piece of this this is where it all comes from right it all stems from that sovereign. So, Logan, tell us a little bit about what's going on specifically with the Uyghurs right now. Where where are they at? What's what's the state of that persecution look like?
2: Yeah, I feel like first I kind of want to draw back and talk about how we got to where we are today. That since President Xi Jinping became president in 2013, that he has streamlined and accelerated the systematic persecution of all religious minority groups in China. Because to President Xi. The idyllic China is one where the Chinese Communist Party is first, not your family, not your ethnicity, not your culture um, or your religion. So the Uyghur people are a threat to this idyllic China that she's trying to create. Um, But really, this began in about 2016, when the former party secretary of the Tibet Autonomous Region, Chen Guangguo, Mm -hmm. was moved to Xinjiang, which is a far western region of China, where about half the population are the ethnic minority group Uyghurs. Um, Here, he was able to implement the same um, silencing and increased policing that he used against the Tibetan Buddhists, but in an accelerated manner. So he created essentially a police surveillance state where he was able to monitor and control the 12 or so million Uyghurs in that region Mm -hmm. And they did this through facial recognition cameras on every street, mosque, and a lot of the residential home buildings, um, requiring apps on phones to monitor for content that was deemed suspicious by the government. Um, Kashgar and other regions of Xinjiang, even in recent years, have been systematically collecting DNA, fingerprints, blood, iris scans, voice recordings, um, and head portraits of Uyghur residents. Mm-hmm. So all of this. Oh, yeah, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, and they also isn't there also a program where they had members of either the Communist Party or the military living with Uyghur families?
2: hmm. They would have them come and stay in order to monitor uh, what is going on inside the homes. Uh, just so just an insane amount of control in people's everyday lives. And so all of that information is being collected and sorted in order to decide who needs to be sent to these so-called re-education camps. Um, and the reality of these camps is not education, but instead an unjust, unfounded imprisonment of minorities on the basis of anti-terrorism. So Chen Kuanguo was able to build um, and oversee this police state re-education camp system. So his persecution was kind of honed in Tibet and then recreated in Xinjiang. Since 2017, researchers have identified 380 new prison sites in Xinjiang using satellite imagery. And this is where between, they believe, one to three million Uyghurs, Kazakhs and other Turkic minorities um, have been or are currently being incarcerated. So the goal of these camps is basically indoctrination to transform them into citizens who would never challenge the ruling Communist Party. But again, it's ironic to call it re-education. Because it's many scholars and academics, professionals who are fluent in Mandarin, who may have even been Communist Party members, have been arrested because they are Uyghur or because they are Muslim.
0: What percentage of the population does that does that equal to the one to three million that are in the camps? Is that what uh, What percentage of the Uyghur population is that?
2: That's probably about a third and the higher end of the spectrum. Um, there's about twelve million Uyghurs probably in the Xinjiang region, which is. In recent years, about half of the total population of Mm -hmm. Xinjiang. Uh, And a lot of people think that there's been a ton of Han people moving in. Han is the ethnic majority um, of China moving into Xinjiang to kind of try to dilute the the Uyghur population there. So probably about a third of Uyghur Hmm. Uyghur Muslims um, is the upper cusp of that number. But in a lot of the leaked documents from the Chinese Communist Party, Reasons that Uyghurs were justified in being sent to these camps varied from having too many children, having family and connections outside of China, owning a Quran in the house, um, having a beard, uh, whatever they kind of label as suspicious activity. So these like everyday, ordinary, peaceful religious practices, such as prayer, uh, became reasons for internment. Officials have targeted religious leaders in sacred places, such as Muslim cemeteries and mosques, in an attempt to break down those cultural traditions of the group. But when we look at the camps themselves, we really only know what's going on inside of them because of former detainees who have somehow been released and who have been brave enough to speak out. Because unfortunately, Mm -hmm. foreigners and journalists and government officials have been barred from visiting the region. But the pictures that these survivors paint of the high security facilities is of rampant and systematic mental, physical, and sexual abuse. Torture and beatings are common intermixed between the propaganda trainings that they sit through. Mm. And horrifically, as John said, uh, it has been labeled a genocide, but it was heightened beyond a cultural genocide because of the mass sterilization of women detainees are being given forcibly given IUDs and are being given unknown medication that stops menstruation even after mm-hmm. they've left the camp. Um, so this, that is one of the requirements to be called mm-hmm. a genocide is to do that population control, to try to stop uh, women from being able to have children. Mm-hmm. Um, really one of the most heart wrenching stories to come out of the camps uh, just this past year, is women are now speaking out about the systematic rape mm. of the women by the guards in the camp. Um, and there's quite a few women that have spoken out and shared their stories and experiences. Uh, but one story that I mean could make you lose sleep is uh, apparently some of the guards had brought out all the detainees into a courtyard and grabbed one of the Uyghur women um, and raped her in front of all the other detainees and forced the other women to watch. And if any of them reacted, cried, tried to look away, they were then removed and taken away for punishment. Mm. Um, So just the crimes against humanity and beyond inhumane treatment um, of these people for really basic reasons for trying to live their lives um, should be raising alarm bells with everyone across the world. But really, one one of the last aspects I want to draw from the surveillance state to kind of the re-education camps, there's also this kind of new third realm that they found is that this new level is the Chinese government has found a way to monetize this genocide. So evidence indicates that graduating detainees from this re-education system have been sent directly to factories to work across regions of China. So this system from surveillance to re-education to forced labor means that China can achieve this indoctrination and turn a profit off of it. Hmm. Because China is the largest cotton producer in the world. And 80% right. of China's cotton comes from the Xinjiang region. Hmm. So this means that every clothing item that says made in China is highly, highly likely to be complicit with the Uyghur slave labor.
0: That's insane. It's just absolutely Incredible and, and, and horrendous. Peter, tell us a little bit. You've kind of been on the forefront of the policy side of things for a while. Tell us what are some things the State Department has done in the past? Is looking to do to to kind of push back on this and expand this religious freedom and and basically stop what's going on there.
3: Well, sadly, there isn't. I would say first of all, it's it's not enough. Um, but but a lot of work was done and is being done. The Trump administration gave a lot of uh, leech to the international religious freedom office and state department. Uh, and that, uh, that office, um, had, was, had been created, but it was, it was nascent and it wasn't really until ambassador Brownback, secretary, uh, Pompeo and really vice president Pence, all sort of with the blessing of president Trump really put energy into this effort that that office sort of came into its own, I would say, and really got what what became sort of a seat at the big at the big kids table. Um before then it had really been almost almost sort of like a second tier issue that we would get to if we had time when we dealt with the the adult issues. Um so it really came into its own. And and uh, an example of that uh and the work that was done by the Earth office and by the Global Criminal Justice Office um was the recognition of genocide uh that is going on. That is as John correctly pointed out, that is a legal definition there that was You know, are meticulously researched and poured over and considered and debated internally was not sort of a haphazard political decision. Uh, And and we had to do that at the State Department because there's a credibility argument going on in the international community right now between the U.S. and China. And so when the U.S. comes out and says China is committing a genocide. Uh, a lot of countries are then looking to see what China says. And China says, no, we're not. This is a lie from the U.S. It's politically motivated. They're, they're threatened by our rising economic power. Right. And so there's, there's this sort of this major credibility debate that's going on. And I have you know friends from other countries who when I talk to them I and I raise the issue of, of Uyghurs, um, especially with Muslims from the Middle East, they're skeptical. They say, what proof do you have? And thankfully, we have a huge amount of proof now from from survivors, from uh, from satellite imagery and even from Chinese government documents stating what they're doing. They're not shy. They say this in their own documents. Right. So um, there's a huge body of evidence. It was important to, to to sort of put a put a flag in the ground and say a genocide is being committed. This is not acceptable. Now. okay, So where do you go from there? Um, there were the sanctions have been placed on the entities committing these atrocities, the government funded and government uh, adjacent entities to the CCP. Committing these atrocities. Um, it's it's never enough, right? Uh and as as the the sort of in the big picture, how do you get China to stop doing this? Well, you have to make it more painful for them to engage in this bad behavior uh than it is beneficial, right? So right. we have to increase, I think, pain on a whole host of of subjects. Now, what is the the US has taken some smart steps, um, just sort of in the geostrategic Posturing the the formation of the Quad, uh, Secretary Pompeo uh, sort of launching the Quad, which is continuing on in the Biden administration, which is Australia, India, Japan, and and the United States working together uh, for stability in the region and partnership. And then there's also the A U K U S I guess how it's how it's would be said, but um, that is the U S, Australia, and the U K coming together to collaborate. That is a new, that was newly announced by Biden recently and that's a smart move. Uh, things like that are important on on a big scale. Um, but then I sort of have a, a laundry list of, of things that I would like to see happening uh, more sort of on a a smaller scale um, that are important as well. And these are things that I think maybe for your listeners may be of interest. Uh, Logan rightly pointed out that supply chains are entangled in this. And, um, you know, uh, uh, the Australian uh, Strategic Policy Institute put out this really phenomenal study uh, where they basically said they listed 82 well-known global brands in technology, clothing, and automotive. So we're talking Apple BMW, um, Nike, Samsung—that uh, likely they the their research suggests that those brands likely source supply chains that go back to uh, sort of products that are produced by Uyghur forced labor. This is slave labor, uh, Uyghur enslaved Uyghur Muslims uh, producing these products in the supply chain, right? And so that is that is really troubling. And, and as of yet, a, a good response to that has not been developed. I'm working with a number of groups that are trying to sort of sort out how do we clearly sort of uh, delineate so people who don't want to participate through the jeans that they're wearing or the phone that they're buying um, in supporting forced you know religiously uh uh, identified slave labor and genocide and so that's 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 one element is going to be sort of sorting out how we handle supply chains how we make decisions in our purchasing uh and encourage companies not to uh, participate in supply chains that tie back to uh forced labor and and really especially religious uh, persecution associated with forced labor and and really a lot of these companies often don't even know because supply chains have three and four layers deep and a lot of companies aren't asking tough questions of their suppliers um another great example is is uh the, the mulan movie right this is one that's close to home for people right uh disney making a movie that in which they thanked the uh they made it they produced this film next company or these government entities that are basically committing genocide right uh, unacceptable and thankfully there was a lot of outcry and uh disney sort of financially and publicly suffered. Uh, for that action. Uh, More of that should be done. More, more. uh, I was, I'm really, um, I don't know if you guys have seen this uh, NBA player, uh, Ennis uh, Cantor, who's been very vocal and it's, and it's in harsh contrast to what we saw James uh, Harden when he apologized uh, to the CCP uh, sort of saying, Oh, we're so sorry. We, you know, the, the, when the Rockets manager said, you know, said he supported uh, the people of Hong Kong and James Harden came and said, we're so sorry. We've hurt your feelings, you know, what a terrible thing. So we're seeing this really. So, you know, people should should support this NBA player, share his story on Facebook, share his messages on Twitter uh, that, you know, th- these are those are li- those are low hanging fruit. You know, don't watch lot share these things like, like support these support these uh, attempts. Um, then sort of on a bigger level, what are some things that can be done? I want to see more states do what Texas did and look really closely at. Uh, Chinese uh, billionaires uh, tied to the CCP buying property in their states. Uh, Texas has passed a law to try and manage this because they had a a Chinese billionaire buy 140,000 acres uh, of Texas. Uh, So uh, and this guy is tied in with the CCP, tied in with the Chinese military, uh, you know, very, very disturbing. I wanted to tie into the Texas power grid. So they so they're, they're addressing that more states should be doing that. I want to see. I want to see states looking at public universities getting funding from China and Confucius oh, yeah. Institutes on campus. That's an important. This is something that can be done by state at the state level uh, by by uh, governors. It's an important thing to do. Um, something that I wish we had done, and I and I and I'm afraid it's too late. And I'm afraid that uh, the Biden administration is not serious enough about uh, this to address this. Really, I think the Trump administration just started the, the 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 train on this, but would have been a moving of the Olympics from Beijing. This is a huge credibility moment uh and and uh, you know the ccp is going to win uh, a big uh, credibility gain by having the olympics there and the reality is for a winter olympics who are the countries that win medals at a winter olympics it's norway it's the u.s it's canada it's sweden it's switzerland it's germany all countries that theoretically have a really big problem with what the ccp is doing to uyghurs will publicly say that and i think had the u.s been proactive on this could have put together a coalition to say we're not going to participate unless the Olympics are moved. Um, We haven't done that. We've seen some movement from Congress, but not enough. Um, And then, uh, you know, another one that I think is, uh, you know, this is this is uh, maybe a little bit hard in the paint, but I think it's worth saying is a conversation needs to be had about economic reparations from China for the impact of COVID. Uh, that's a conversation that's not being had, uh, but really should be at our, you know, at the international level, there should be a, a serious conversation about what, what was the economic impact of COVID on countries and does China bear some responsibility for not sharing information early enough, sharing wrong information uh, and, and you know, allowing the spread early on. So um, that's sort of just the maybe my quick laundry list for you and happy to talk more about anything.
0: Yeah, no, that's a good list. It, it really is. John, the the church has a, a really good history of being on the front line of a lot of these things. I think back about the slave, the human slave trade, and William Wilberforce, and all of that. Like, there was boycotts there in certain sense with 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 sugar and, and and things like that. Have we, I guess, and this is a question for everybody. Have we seen from a from a consumer standpoint, other than me being able to say with a clear conscience, I'm not participating in this? Have we seen boycotts be effective, or is it more of a issue is it more of a, a government to government issue i guess how do how do we know that what we're doing is working does that make sense
1: yeah that's a great question i don't know if i'm the best one to talk about it I, boycotts um are uh are tough uh they're tough even when you're talking about something like boycotting disney which for right. some folks tried and sure cool, and cool. it was probably not very successful um Boycotting an entire nation, particularly one that is the source of so much uh, export uh, exported goods around the world um, that there has to be a level of cooperation there. I think it's also there has to be a level of cooperation there. And as Peter did a great job summing up and an overwhelming (laughs) set of facts, which is uh, amazing that he put all that together. I mean, particularly if you look at Hollywood's complicity and the complicity of professional sports uh to the ccp it's it's dreadful and so they're of course um you know dealing with uh, the the financial pressures um you know it 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 it, it would be funny if it weren't so tragic that the tough guy john cena for example did this kind of like you know, noodle spine back bend over, yeah. you know, thing that we've not seen from the guy, you know, who plays the tough guy in so many movies. I mean, it was just like a script you couldn't have written mm-hmm. as, as if Xi Jinping wrote the script himself. Like, you know, in other words, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was more effective that he that he, quote unquote, failed the party and then apologized. And if nothing had ever happened up front because of the persona right. of John Cena and the financial levers there. And so, so the, the level of co-option uh, of powerful, powerful uh, folks. In the U.S. and in the West at large is one of the complicating factors here. And I think Peter did a great job summing that up. And it's hard to see how simple boycotts are going to go beyond. But I mean, I do think that um, in, in a time when you don't have sort of the cultural power and this is going to you know be the second time I've quoted Alexander Solzhenitsyn <laughs> uh, in, you know, already. And we're just, what, 30 some minutes into it. Uh, and that is the importance, I think, of people of conscience to, as he put it, not live by lies. In other words, don't be forced to say something that's not true. And, you know, uh, I think Peter's point on the Mulan, you know, kind of thing when Disney kind of, you know, issued these kind of flowering compliments for this just terrible, terrible thing. Uh, that's a way of being forced to say something that's not true. Don't participate in lies. That's something that we can all do. Don't participate in, in lies. Um, And uh, I, I, I think that that's, you know, that's something that we do in order to keep the truth front and center, even if some of our boycotting uh, doesn't work. And, and I, I guess, in other words, you don't boycott necessarily because it'll work. You boycott, If it's the right thing to do to not be co-opted into something that's actually wrong. I also think it's important to note that if you look at history and when it has worked and when it hasn't worked, it's never worked by itself. Mm-hmm. you know you might say that it's a a, a necessary but not sufficient condition for change right. that's especially true in the fight against british slavery mm-hmm. um there there was an awful lot and as my one of my friends puts it it's not one thing it's everything working together there and and along with some divine favor and oh, sure. of course that's what we need to uh, pray about um you know as 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 well
0: yeah, I think it's also hard too because as a as a consumer, if I boycott something, I, I feel like I'm making a difference, but I, I also don't necessarily. I'm not spurred to do more, right? So I, I say, okay, I'm not going to buy these jeans or I'm not going to buy these shoes, and I can feel good about myself and I can feel good about what I'm doing, but it doesn't cost me anything, right? It, it you know, it's a bear, buying a pair of Nikes, a bear I buy a pair of, of Adidas or Adidas if you want to say it like the Europeans do, but it's it's a personal responsibility to do more and to go further. Uh, to think, to talk, uh, and to and to have conversations about this stuff, I think it's really good. Um, what do y'all see as? Is Is there anything coming out of the Biden administration outside of these? You, you talked about those um, those groups that are that are forming and, and working together. Is there anything that we can say? Hey, you know, you can call your congressman or you can write your representative. Is there anything that's coming about? I guess who should we be? Two two part question. Is there anything coming down the pipe that we should be looking for? And two, who is thinking and talking well on these things? I know the pastor Bob Fu is doing a lot of work at China Aid that's that's really really good. Who should we be look, looking to, listening to, encouraging in this fight?
2: I'm at least happy to jump in and talk. At least from the congressional yeah. side, and um, if you're a constituent, call your congressman or your senator and tell them to endorse the Weaker Forced Labor Prevention Act. Um, there's real teeth to this bill. Putting the Reliable, like the liability of having tainted weaker forced labor right. goods in your supply chain on the burden of the companies not on the consumer a lot um, of times with consumer boycotts it's like putting a band-aid on a bullet wound you know it's yeah. like you're not getting to the root of it but to sanction and block goods from coming into our country it's not an option for consumers to buy it um so that is one that i'm like Please call your yeah. your congressmen your senators for the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act.
0: Um, that's a that's a Rubio bill, right? This Marco Rubio is mm-hmm. one of the key sponsors of that.
2: Yes, he is. Um, and then, as far as who to follow and who to listen to, I really want to encourage people to try to find Uyghur advocates to listen to. Whether it's Nuri Turkle, who is now chair uh, or co-chair of vice chair, I think this is the official title of the. Um, of USURF, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, or Rushan Abbas, uh, Omar Kanaat. Um, there's to listen to the Uyghur voices in this and try to elevate them. I think it's really important. And I think as a side note, I was surprised to learn this, that not all Uyghurs are Muslim, that we do have cases of Uyghur Christians and Han Chinese being taken into the Camps and into this forced labor system. China Aid, even just last week, helped rescue a, a Uyghur Christian family. Um, it was a father and three children to get refugee status in Amsterdam. So mm-hmm. if, when we talk about these issues, yes, the vast majority are are we are Muslim and we still support them, but this is also you know Christians, our brothers and sisters, who mm-hmm. who we're fighting for in this as well.
0: That's great. I think. Uh, to clarify, I think you, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but so Uyghurs are a a um, what's the the right way what's the right way to say you have Han, Han Chinese, which is the majority the majority ethnicity, and then you have Uyghurs, mm-hmm. which is a minority ethnicity. But the large portion of Uyghurs are Muslims. Do you know which type? Can you explain which which kind of Muslim they are? Is there are they Sunni or the Shiite? Is there a different group that they belong to? Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
2: From my understanding, they're much more of a cultural religious group um they don't really fall into either categories just okay. from their kind of removal from a lot of like the middle east politics mm-hmm. um but that's kind of my my take i haven't from just sure. talking to my uyghur friends
0: no, that's good that's important that is really important to remember that it is they do make up a, a, a larger group of folks i also think it was interesting too when you're talking about the surveillance state even if somebody is not in a in a physical prison, the amount of surveillance that goes on in Xinjiang Province specifically is just off the charts, and uh, somebody that I was listening to was talking about how they went back to to see they were from the area they were from the, that region they left they came back, uh, and they were like, all the mosques are are empty. nobody's going mm-hmm. nobody's nobody's practicing their religion and they they said, well, it's because everybody's being watched because there's there's people in our homes there's there's cameras on the street and they're monitoring people who go in and out and I think on the religious freedom front, it's important because there's been a, a change in rhetoric recently from freedom of religion to freedom of worship. Right. And that freedom of worship has been very personal. It's what I do in my own home. It's what I do in my own time, uh, in my closet, if you will. And, but it's not my ability to practice my, my, my religion in public. Uh, and I, I'm not drawing any conclusions or any any parallels. I'm just saying that there, there is, that is an important right to maintain that right to practice a religion as you see fit. Uh, and, and that's just, it's it's really really bad. There's no other way to say it.
2: Yeah, and it's yeah. It all kind of go ahead, Peter. I've talked too much. I keep jumping in. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I'll
3: just, I'll just, I'll just add, uh, Bryce. I think, I think that is it's helpful um, to to sort of be reminded of that uh, and and the fact that and this is something that, that my boss, Sam Brownback, often often cites is yours or will say is that you know, religious freedom is a foundational freedom because it's the freedom to to decide what we do with our own soul. Um, And at some level that is, you know, as Christians, uh, you know, who have a rich and ongoing uh, history and tradition as a faith group of being persecution of being persecuted to the point of martyrdom. um, That is something that I think we understand that at a, at a fundamental level, that is not that is not a decision that an, a, a sort of a belligerent power can make for you. That is sort of you have a, you have the freedom between you and God to sort of uh, uh, you know rectify your relationship with your creator. Um, but uh, that sort of it, as a belligerent power attempts to oppress you in that way, that is one of those sort of most fundamental things about your identity that they can attempt to control. And and what what China is doing. Is really they're trying to wipe, uh, erase an identity that they feel is not in alignment with the goals of the CCP, um, and so it is. It, I mean, it's it is a it is an attack on a core human right.
0: That's really good, Johnny.
1: Have anything you want to add on that? No, I mean, I, I listen. I'm so grateful, by the way, for Ambassador Brownback and what he's not only done while he was in that position, but what he's done since then um, and continues to do. Uh, to champion some of these causes and to try to find ways to just increase the idea. I I, I'd also say this, that one of the reasons, um, I I think it's important too, that as, as, as Christians that we uh, find ways to um, advance, you know, the protections for groups like the Muslim Uyghurs or Mm -hmm. uh, Nigerian Christians, um, not just because of human rights abuses, not just because the, scale of what they face is genocide now let me be clear that would be enough to get Mm -hmm. us to you know to stand up and to do everything we could for their protection but i also think that what one of the things that that has to be done here is a rebuilding of the notion of religious freedom a rebuilding of what it actually means Mm -hmm. Um, the culture wars here have redefined religious freedom in such a way that I think for a lot of people, it just sounds like code language for discrimination and typically on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. So you have this, you have this thing that is so critically important for the long term health of nation states, the long term health of societies, communities. And in that case, for peacefulness in world history. And it has been basically hijacked by a, very localized western you might even say elitist sort of conflict like the conflict that has taken place in the you know the American context just in the last thirty or forty years um you know the, 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 this kind of falls into the uh, the category of uh, what what one Oxford researcher is calling luxury beliefs in other words that you have to get to a certain place as a culture to have the luxury to believe certain things right. and to diminish religious freedom as a concept to just kind of how it treats uh, uh, sexual behavior is a luxury belief. You don't have that sort of you know context in most of the world uh, where it's, um, uh, it's it's far more earthy and gritty and, and you actually have to have the real hard conversations about what makes a nation go forward. And the role of freedom of association and freedom of religion. And I I know I'm I'm kind of in the clouds right now and away from kind of the on the ground horrific tragedy that we uh, have heard about from from Logan, uh, I think, in great detail already, which is just so helpful. Mm -hmm. But, but, But it's going to be hard to do anything long term here unless in the American imagination. And that includes within the church. We get on we, we get a grasp on what religious freedom actually is and why it actually matters and how is, um, you know, Peter quoted Ambassador Brown back. It just actually is, um, you know, what it actually is and the way it serves the larger uh, understanding of religion in a, for a society.
0: Sure. Let's take a quick tangent. One of the things that, that you've been talking a lot about, that I think, is, is foundational to these ideas of human dignity, human worth is uh, you said recently that um, I do remember exactly how you phrased it, that our problem is, is, uh, is anthropology. Is that, can you, do you know what I'm going for here? I, you talk about the, the, you quote T.S. Eliot all the time and say that you, in order to know what something's for, you have to know where, I'm just totally messing up your whole shtick. Can you just quote T.S. Eliot for me uh-huh. and, uh, and go down the road? Cause it's about who we are as people, right? That's the issue. The issue is who are we? Yeah. And what are what are we for? Right. Yeah, and how, but- and how does that interact with the world? And then the worldview of the Communist Party, which just says we're going to use people as a tool of the state, uh, like you talked about earlier, these are bad people, and so we're going to get rid of them. How does how do we reclaim that worldview here, which then allows us to push for that worldview there?
1: Yeah. Well, you're getting at the heart of what's wrong if you reduce religious freedom down, because that sort of definition of religious freedom, that it's just basically uh, something mm-hmm. that serves you and it's just about your own personal preferences, uh, then that reduces religion down um, and reduces our understanding of the human person down to just, you know, kind of our subjective causes. What Elliot basically argued uh, and he was talking in this context about education. But before you should before you know what to do with something or what something can do, you need to know what that something is for and if you see religion uh, and religious freedom just about whether you know giving somebody the freedom to do something as opposed to understanding really who we are. so basically removing religious freedom from a an entire, you know cultural context as 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 uh, you know, as Logan described earlier that the CCP has done, um you know, it's assuming something about human people. It's assuming something about uh, who they belong to, who their actual, the deepest, Who their actual deepest convictions about life in the world belong to, you know, whether freedom comes from the state or whether freedom is protected by the state, Uh, that there could not be a a more important distinction in the future of a nation than how it tends to. To answer that question, uh, you know, whether people belong to the state or whether the state belongs to the people. Th- th- these are vi- these are fundamental questions about anthropology, about what it means to be human. And secularism, of course, flatten flattens humans out. It removes any sort of vertical dynamic, any sort of sort of, sort of vertical definition for who we are. And so then we are just who we are in relationship to one another or in Relationship to these social entities, and you know when those things become absolutized, like the CCP does, and and really, I I think Logan was right at the beginning too. There's a there's a key moment in this whole story, and that is this kind of Chairman Mao complex that Chairman G got at some point, where he really starts to see himself as this never ending legacy, right. and uh, and that you know the whole future rests on him and what he's doing. I mean, listen, this is. Uh, this is a flattening out of the the Chinese people and we see it all over the place. So very, very important.
0: This has been an excellent conversation. Uh, we really appreciate y'all's time. This has just been, it, it's, it's good to sit and talk and discuss and get a little nuance, uh, especially today in, in the 24 hour news cycle that we have, everything's in 30 minute segments or 30 second segments. And to be able to take 30 minutes, 45 minutes an hour uh, and sit down and, and hash a lot of this stuff out is, is just really helpful. Um, so we really appreciate y'all's time today and, and look forward to having y'all back in the future. Tony, you, you want to talk about a little bit what we have
1: coming up next? Sure. Our next episode is on Hong Kong and uh, the threat to Taiwan and how that is developing and specifically how China has approached this and, uh, uh, and been oppressive to those in Hong Kong and what this means for the future. So look forward That's to seeing you guys now.
0: It'll be great. I'm Bryce Futch. I'm Tony Melton. And you've been listening to The Way Forward.